gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of one of the largest and oldest wrestling families on the planet. The Tennessee Stud, Ron Fuller. Through 93 years and four generations. The Stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name. You will remember it. And now the stud is here. Please welcome the Tennessee stud Ron Fuller and your host Jeff Maldron. Welcome everybody to another edition of Ron Fuller's Studcast. I am Jeff Maldron and it's a pleasure to be with you once again as the Tennessee stud takes us down that road of wrestling history and now the man of the hour the tennessee stud himself ron fuller ron how you doing today i'm doing great my man glad to be here i'm gonna get something out of the way right off the bat here uh, i want to wish uh old lou here our producer here uh, a happy birthday our producer extraordinaire there you go out there in san francisco beautiful city so happy uh, birthday to lou so ron where are we going today well we're going to be uh, moving into the month of February, 1976. We're going to re- discuss the card, February 1st, 1976, first day of February. It's the beginning of the month, and uh, there's going to be a long, two-running month-long program starting in February of 1976. One of them is Carson and Ron Wright, and uh, that's going to develop into something pretty serious because uh, Carson's going to throw out a challenge to, or a, a reward to any fan or any any wrestler that can. Uh, Bust Ron Wright's eye. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today, as a matter of fact. Then, uh, you know, Rob and I, we're off into a months-long uh, program with with the Homer Odell's Tennessee Tag Champions, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone. We're also going to talk about the TV show, January 31st, 1976, uh, the day before this uh, program that we're talking about, the February 1st actual show. And uh, I have a great story today about Homer Odell, who... Uh, has had as great a fear of fans than any guy I guess I ever knew in the wrestling business. And uh, he, he gets himself into a little bit of trouble in one of our spot shows in uh, early February of 76. And now uh, we're going to close with another learning tree. And this one is a completely new subject. We'll be taking an in-depth look at the NWA, the meetings, uh, how they pick champions, who I would have thought would make a good champion, uh, settling disputes, and a whole lot more. We're going to take the deep dive today into the National Wrestling Alliance. So uh, if you're set, Jeff, we're going to just roll right into it. Uh, Today I want to start with that card of February 1st, 1976. We're in Chihuahua Park. Charlie Cook faced off against Jerry Myatt. Dennis Hall wrestled against Superstar again. This time it wasn't number two, it's number one, who was Dick Dunn. Jimmy Golden took on the Superstar number two, Tarzan Leon Baxter. First of the two main events featured Rob and I against the Tennessee Tag Champions, Norvell Austin, Butch Malone, managed by General Homer Odell. And uh, we'd used our devastating move of where Rob shoots them in the ropes and backdrops them, and I catch them in the air upside down and drop them on their head. Well, we did it the week before to Norvell Austin, and Homer Odell got them disqualified to keep us from winning the title. So, uh, you know, we're going to be using this move again, if we can, on this Sunday's uh, match with them. We had the refs started counting us out. In fact, he was counting out Austin, and Homer just rolled up in the ring on purpose to get disqualified. So our hands got raised, but we didn't get the belts. Uh, this Sunday afternoon, it's going to be a no disqualification match, and uh, no disqualification is going to mean they can't be saved by Homer doing something. The final match of the afternoon is going to be the Southeastern champion, the new Southeastern champion, Ron Wright, who won the title from Tanaka last week. He'll be defending his belt for the first time ever against Don Carson. So the TV to promote this card took place the day before at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, as all televisions did, 2 in the afternoon, and then we're coming back the very next day in the afternoon to have the matches. 
Uh, that two o'clock Saturday afternoon time frame is now dominated by Southeastern wrestling. In fact, more people are watching uh, wrestling at two o'clock in the afternoon on Saturday in the Knoxville market than from any station from any time from sign on around five in the morning to 8 p.m. prime time at night. So we're kicking butt now and we really got uh, things going. That's why we're able to open new towns and business is starting to grow every week. First match, got them started off for the TV, got them started off right with old Don Carson. And boy, he opens the TV with a real, <laughs> real uh, a screaming uh, episode with the crowd. Uh, he's telling them to shut up and they're booing him. And uh, as always, he gets things started off good. He's going to get a win over Tommy Gilbert in his first TV match. And uh, then he went to the set to watch his win Sunday before against Jimmy Golden. And uh, they stayed there. They stayed there for the two-minute commercial break after he watched the match. And then he was joined by the superstars. And Carson complained about how he was eliminated from the Southeastern Tournament by Robert Fuller interfering in his match. And, that, and he had lost to Jimmy Golden. And now he had just defeated him again. So. Uh, he asked superstar number two what he was going to do to Jimmy Golden the next day. And obviously, superstar, that's Leon Baxter, that promised Carson he was going to take care of Golden. And superstar number one then had to, that's Dick Dunn, had to promise that he was going to take care of Dennis Hall on the next day. And then Carson got very serious with these guys, uh, the two superstars. Uh, he told them how ugly he thought Ron Wright was and that the only way he could get any uglier was if someone blacked his eye. So he turned to Les Thatcher and he says, uh, I'll give $500 to anybody who will black Ron Wright's eye. And uh, Les shook his head in disgust, obviously. And uh, so Carson then turned to the superstar standing behind him. He said, I'll give either one of you two $500 if you black his eye. And he said, and if you both black his eye, I'll give you $500 each. So, uh, you know, they just went crazy right there. And they were going like, well, we'll do it today, man. Is he is he wrestling here on the program? So Carson asked Les. He says, uh, "Hey, is uh, that is uh, is right wrestling on the show today?" And Les looks at the format and he goes, "Yes, he is." And Carson shook his head, kind of up and down, looked at the superstars, and they shook their heads back at him, and they they just got up and left. And they left with time left in the interview, and that's very unusual for Carson. He couldn't get enough time on his interviews. And he, they just walked away, shaking their heads like, we're going to do something. We're going to get right today. So Les ended up filling out the rest of the interview, and he ended up saying something about he didn't really like what Carson was talking about today. He, he didn't approve of that, basically. So Jimmy Golden's in the second match, and the crowd's obviously happy to see Jimmy. He's a big favorite at this point. At the end of his match, he drop kicks Rick Connors off the top rope so hard it sent Rick Connors flying face first through the ropes and onto the concrete floor of the studio. Jimmy had to get out of the ring and go out and pick him up and throw him back into the ring before he could even cover him and get the three count. So it was another fantastic instant replace. All of those drop kicks that Jimmy threw off the top rope were just spectacular things. People at home had to watch that and go, wow, he took his head off. So Golden went to the set with Les and waited until the commercial break and Dennis Hall joined him for the interview. Jimmy said he'd heard the first interview with Carson and the superstars and that he and Dennis were both going to get their victories over the superstars the next day. They were each going to beat one of those superstars. Hall promised the studio crowd he was going to beat number one, and Jimmy also guaranteed he was going to take care of number two. Uh, Jimmy left the set, but he turned to Les before he left, and he said something about what kind of rat is Don Carson to pay somebody to do his dirty work? which, uh, you know, the fans really got off on that comment. They really, really loved it. And uh, and it's pretty truthful. I mean, what kind of guy goes out there and says, hey, I'll pay somebody 500 if you can do what I can't do. So uh, it's a good start to the program. The personality profile was again done live in front of the studio audience from an adjoining studio like we had been doing the last couple of weeks. And Les and I were both loving the effect of that live audience watching these profiles. Studio crowd could see the participants and they responded instantly to the comments. So Les opened the profile by himself. Then he introduced Ron Wright. And Ron comes out with his new Southeastern Championship belt around his waist and he's ready to wrestle later in the show. 
And uh, as soon as he comes out, the crowd went crazy, especially the fact he had on that Southeastern belt that the tournament had been going for months to see who was going to win it. And Ron, being the, the pro that he was, kind of grasped the moment. And instead of sitting down with Les immediately and those fans over there going crazy, he just walked from that auxiliary studio right straight into the main studio. Cameras followed him. He went through the crowd there. They were all over him. It was a typical Ron Wright move. And, uh, you know, they mobbed him out there. And uh, they celebrated with him his victory over Tanaka. He finally came back and uh, had a seat. And I thought the spontaneity of the moment was absolutely magical, man. I mean, uh, Wright just had a feeling for perfect timing for how to do things, especially during interviews. Ron talked about how proud he was to represent what was becoming one of the great territories in America, Southeastern, at this point, we're really starting to make a name for ourselves. He thanked the fans for giving him the will to win against an opponent like Tanaka. It's pretty hard for anybody to go in the ring with Tanaka and think they're going to win. The fans loved it as much as I did in the control room. I thought this show was off to a great start. Immediately following the profile, General Homer Odell, Norvell Austin, and Butch Malone entered the studio with their Tennessee tag belts on and to obviously a resounding course of booze, man. The fans didn't like them. They were really starting to get some heat, especially Homer. They were introduced as their opponents, Rocky Smith and Tommy Rich, came into the studio. Pretty good pair right there for, for a match with Austin and Malone, uh, Rocky Smith and Tommy Rich. And this match was really tremendous. Uh, it went about 15 minutes. It was a long match for TV. The heels got the win and came to the set. And they were supposed to watch the tag match from the Sunday before where Rob and I had gotten uh, the victory because Homer rolled in the ring, got his team disqualified on purpose. But instead of watching that video, Les switched the video on him and he showed the end of the Ron Wright match with Tor Tanaka for the Southeastern Championship. When the video started, Homer kind of expected to see the other video with our Tennessee tag match. And then all of a sudden, he's looking at Ron Wright and Tanaka. And he knows what's going to happen on the end of this match. And he didn't want the fans to see it. So Homer demanded. He said, stop that video, Thatcher. We're not going to watch that video. But uh, Thatcher told the director just to continue. Play the one we got rolling here. So Homer, he pooched out his old big lips, man. And he's like a looked like a big spoiled kid sitting there. And they asked why Thatcher wanted to see this one. Why do you want to see this video? And Les didn't respond, but he started covering the action of what was going on in the ring because, you know, Homer didn't want to say anything at this point. Uh, he knew where this was headed. So, and uh, as the referee is about to count Ron right out, Tanaka's on him for the win. Uh, Homer run, rolls up into the ring. Uh, he's actually trying to get away from Don Wright, but he rolls up in there at the wrong time. And instead of Tanaka getting a win right in the middle, Tanaka got disqualified. And because the rules for the tournament was that and neither one of the opponents, it's a championship match for a long tournament, there is no opponent. So if there was a DQ, the man that got DQ'd was going to lose. So Homer had cost Tanaka victory. That's basically what it rolled down to. And so let's ask why, why he had done that. Since it cost his big man Tanaka to lose instantly, why, why did you roll in there, Homer? What was that all about? And, uh, you know, Homer, <laughs> he didn't have anything to say. He was silent. You know, he's like a big old lips was pooped out there. He was mad. He was upset about it. And about that time, the Austin and, and Homer, I mean, Austin and, uh, and Malone were back there standing behind him. They started talking, telling Les, hey, kid, shut up. Why don't you leave him alone, right? So, so Les just kept digging, though, man. He had him going. He said, uh, let's probe deeper, man, asking Homer, uh, where was Tanaka today? And Homer had no, he was silent. Les covered the match for him again. As Tanaka was about to get to Homer, it showed Tanaka about to get hold of Malone when Malone had come into the ring after the match was over. Tanaka's mad at Homer, and Malone was going to get involved, and uh, Tanaka backed uh, Malone off in the corner, and by that time, Austin made it down there, and he tried to talk to Tanaka out of getting anybody in there. He got after him. And then finally, Tanaka put his sights on Homer. And uh, by that time, all three of those guys hit the floor. They actually ran to the dressing room. So uh, 
you know, there was no comment. They didn't make any comment. They kind of left again. Now there's less left with time again in an interview segment. You know, it was it was it was like a crazy thing for Les. Uh, when Les asked about that, no comment again. Tanaka, you know, it, it just uh, Les just had to take care of business here, and you know, he he let the, he let him go without a word, and uh, Les finished the interview for him. He said something about Tanaka not being heard from since that match almost a week ago. He had disappeared. I think that's the way he put it. And uh, and then he looked at the camera and he asked, "Where is Tanaka?" It was a great ending to the little little second little interview there, and uh, it really worked out well. So Rob and I came in after the commercial break. We thanked Les for his attack, and that's what it was on Homer. Uh, we had watched the match after hours the Sunday before. Uh, when when the match was going on live, we had seen what happened. We talked about Tanaka. Maybe he'd left the area, or maybe he was just laying for Homer, and one of these nights of some of these buildings we were wrestling in, Tanaka's going to come and get him. And the fans loved that because <laughs> they knew that must have chilled the Homer sitting in the back listening to that interview. We talked about tomorrow's match being a no DQ. And uh, when we dropped one of those champions on their head tomorrow, Homer wouldn't be able to save their belts by getting them disqualified this time. And if he was stupid enough to let us get our hands on him, we was going to drop him on his head too. Fans were so into it, we could hardly be heard by the time we entered Finished the interview. Now came the final match of the TV. Phil Rainey announced Big Don Lambert, who was already in the ring. Then Ron Wright appeared in the studio, had his belt on. The crowd went crazy. Lambert jumped him before the introductions, as just as he was entering the ring. Ripped his belt off of him, started stomping right. Ron made a comeback. You know, one of his old classic comebacks. He hit him with a right, hit him with a left, hit him with a right, hit him with a left. Crowd's going crazy. And all of a sudden, Don Carson appears from out of nowhere into the studio, jumps up on the apron of the ring, and Wright went for him, which is natural. He, you know, he's going to go get him. He's he's better off seeing him than him being behind him. So Lambert now takes advantage of it, and he nails Wright from behind, and uh, he full Nelsons him. The referee starts ringing the bell. As soon as Carson jumps back on the apron the second time, the bell starts ringing. Match is over, basically. Ron Wright's going to win. Carson loads his glove and he throws a punch at Ron and Ron's in that full Nelson with a big old Lambrick behind him and Ron ducked it and Lambrick went down. He was out. <laughs> he was down. Ron went on the floor and he grabbed Carson. He drug him over the apron and he started slamming his glove hand, his right hand, where he was supposed to be injured. He started slamming that on the apron and Carson was screaming. And that's about the time the two superstars nailed Ron from behind they took him and dragged him literally over to the Les's desk at the set. And Les backed away because, you know, they were pounding on him some and they were trying to get him in a position. You couldn't tell what they were going to do. But they bent him backwards on the top of the desk and they put the back of his head, forced it down to the desk. Tarzan Baxter held Ron Wright's head and Dick Dunn got over top of him and busted his eye with a hard way punch. The uh, microphone was right there, really close, and it caught the wicked sound of it, man. It was bad. Just the sound of it was was pretty scary. Then Ron slid off into the floor in front of the desk, and they continued. Superstars, and by then, Carson, too, were all three on him, and he was bleeding pretty bad already. Uh, Les started calling for help. Uh, Rob went out there, Jimmy, Charlie Cook, Dennis Hall. For there were four guys rushed out there in the studio, and they picked Ron up. And then by this point, he's a bloody mess. Then uh, they tried to take him to the dressing room, but he wouldn't leave the set. He grabbed the microphone from Les, and he looked straight in the camera, and he began to try to talk. But the hard way is a concussion. I mean, when you get a punch like that, uh, you you have a concussion. And he, he wasn't able to talk. He, his voice was very slurred because he had just taken that shot to the head. The cut above his right eye was open. And it was bleeding. And the camera had a real close shot. And I'm up in the studio watching. And you could actually see the bone, the white bone beneath the cut. And he, he was still trying to do an interview. But the camera shot was just too much blood. I, and I'm, thank goodness I was in the control room. So I screamed at Kincaid. I said, go to black. Go to black. Get out of it. So, you know, 
Kincaid was really sharp. He was and he was very listening to me very well all the time. And we got out of it. So after order was restored in the studio and Les had a very unusual closing for the show, he apologized for the superstars and Carson and how this was no place for that type of thing to happen, especially right on television. He apologized to all the fans for what they had seen that day, you know, and he closed the show. The control room was going crazy. They they had never seen anything like that. The techs in the recording room were doing the same. The sound guy. I mean, upstairs in the studio, it was bedlam. Downstairs, there wasn't a drop. There was silence in that studio. Fans were absolutely shocked by what had happened. And uh, and they all knew it was 100% real. So when you have a situation like this, I know Ron is a very old school guy from everything you've told us. Now, was the hard way something that you guys had set up or was it just a, a punch that maybe landed a little too uh, a little too close to the vest? And the second question is, of, of course, one of the things that I've always believed in as a longtime wrestling fan is, is the old term suspension of disbelief. When you can make your fans believe it's real, I'm going to guess as an old school promoter, if I can call you that, that that's when things are ideal for you also. Yeah. I mean, he knew he was going to get his eye busted. Okay. You know, uh, there was no doubt in his mind and, and their mind either. And uh, I wanted it to be done right there at the desk. I wanted it to be heard as well as seen. I was battling in a territory that had, in a town, it, it became a territory once I got involved and expanded it, but it was just Knoxville itself, and Knoxville had not had the the best of wrestling, and uh, their believability for fans was just not there, and I tried to start out with, uh, you know, I brought in uh, Danny Hodge and I brought in Dale Lewis and some real big time, sure time shooters and couldn't really get it done to get things started. And at this point, you know, if you're going to bust somebody's eye, you know, you want people to see it. And, uh, you know, and once they got that shot in which they could actually see the white bone in the cut, you know, I was like, wow, you know, that that. That that's almost too far for me. I was like, whoa, I can't I know that I don't want that to be seen. I was just hoping and praying that people that ran the television station weren't watching this one because it might have been a problem. But uh yeah, he knew it was gonna happen and I thought it was extremely important for the sport to make it believable. And uh God knows that uh, there's nobody that watched that that day that went, Wow, that that wasn't real. Yeah. <laughs> okay, know? so so what happened next, next afternoon, Ron? Well, building was, uh, you know, get over there in the building. Uh, it's not big enough, basically. It's the first time Southeastern Wrestling had turned away a crowd, any fans in Chihuahua Park. Uh, and we never turned any way in the Coliseum so far yet. So it's basically our first sellout. Uh, and it's uh, in February of 1976. Charlie Cook won the first match over Jerry Myatt. Uh, Dennis Hall lost to the superstar, Dick Dunn. Jimmy Golden lost to superstar number two because uh, superstar number one got in the match, involved in the match, and caused him to lose. Robert and I lost when Homer O'Dell got really involved in the match. He, he stuck his metal general's helmet underneath the ropes, and when the referee's back was turned, and Austin ran Rob's head into Homer's <laughs> army helmet, basically. And uh, it didn't help Rob any. And uh, and the blow knocked, he hit him so hard, Rob ran into him so hard that it knocked Homer on his butt on the floor. The ref counted Rob out. Uh, next week, we'd be returning for another chance at the tag titles. But this time, it's going to be a handicap match with Rob and I against all three of them. Uh, Ron Wright came to the ring with his southeastern belt on to, and a huge bandage over his black eye. It was black now. They'd gotten hit the day before. It had time to blacken up. And uh, it looked nasty. Uh, Carson arrived at ringside to a building of booze. Man, I, it shook the roof on that building. Uh, Wright fought valiantly. But Carson opened that eye up again. Uh, when Wright finally began a big comeback, both the superstars came down to ringside. They'd never got into the ring, but they drew his attention enough that Carson got his gov loaded behind his back and hand the referees back. And the rest of that match is Southeastern history. Don Carson 
won the Southeastern Championship on his very first try. Okay, so Ron, we're talking February 1976. What was the house in Knoxville, and where else did you have matches during that first week? The Knoxville house was a new record, like I'd said, for Chilhowee Park. Uh, we were right at 4,000 fans. It was it was above capacity, or or certainly at capacity, and uh, and I wanted to put in more new seats, and I worked on it the very next week. I did not want to turn people away, but it's great to have a full house. And sometimes it's great to turn people away, too, because it adds value to your product. People think that they can't get in to see it. That makes them want to come see it. So I would continue to add more seats. And on Monday, we wrestled in Jellicoe High School Gym. Uh, that was just across the mountaintop on Interstate 75, just north of Knoxville, about 60 miles. Uh, it was a full gym, about 2,200 people. Tuesday, we were in Johnson City. That's where we were on every Tuesday. And that crowd was right at 2,000. We are slowly building that one. We're going to start reaching capacity in Johnson City pretty quickly. Thursday, we're in a little town called La Follette. Again, it's the second time we'd been there. It was only about 40 miles north of Knoxville. Gym was packed, probably 2,500. And, uh, and I got a story I'm going to tell later about Homer on this particular night. Friday, the crew went to Loudoun, Tennessee, which is about 30 miles south of Knoxville on Interstate 75. And uh, it had about 1,800 people there. Uh, I wasn't on that Friday night card. I was wrestling in St. Louis that night. And uh, I'll talk about that later in this studcast. On Saturday, we went to Harlan, Kentucky. And the crowds were growing every time we went there. Uh, this night, it was over 2,500. They had a gym that held 3,000, a little over 3,000. And it's not going to be very much longer until we're going to start hitting those numbers regularly there. Okay, I have another question, Ron, but before you answer it, what was the total attendance for the week and how did the wrestlers do on their payoffs? Well, there was a record week for Southeastern at this point. Uh, about 11,000 total fans for the week. Yeah, that was about a 33,000 total gross for the week. Not about 9,000 for the payroll. For basically 14 guys, it was just over about $600 average per man. And uh, the real beauty of the week was the short trips. We only drove a total of 640 miles round trip for the entire week. Uh, the boys were loving it, man. And, and they were really talking to other wrestlers around the country about what was going on. And that was going to become real obvious in the next couple of months with the talent that I'm going to be able to bring in because of it. Okay, so here's my question. You talked about total mileage that week was about 640 miles. So later on when we got into the uh, the 80s and even into the 90s and stuff like that, when you would get, and I hate the, I hate this term, a hardcore fan, but a, a fan who was really devoted to the product, okay, did you start noticing because you had such short mileage between the trips uh, in some places, did you start seeing spillover like a fan from Knoxville You'd be out there looking and you say, oh, that guy, uh, here we are in Johnson City. That guy was here in Knoxville last night with us. Did you see any of that or was it just a completely different crowd in every city? No. Uh, we had a lot of, lot of uh, people traveling because it was short trips. I mean, if you got one town 60 miles north, another town 30 miles south, you got people that are true fans. They're going to come and see it. So what we did is uh, we didn't run the same card in every town. Every town had a different card, and uh, obviously they had different finishes. So if a fan came to watch it, they didn't see Knoxville's card. They didn't see the same finishes. I mean, we took a lot more time and effort in, in doing business and figuring things than some territories did, because a lot of territories, like Florida, for instance, they're not going to travel from Miami to Tampa very often. Uh, the cities are separated by pretty much a great distance. And, and you could get a little lazy with your booking and say, well, I'm going to put the same card in Fort Myers and over there in O'Galley. And, uh, you know, and I'm going to do Orlando and Miami the same. You know, you didn't have to change everything. But we did because we knew we had a lot of people traveling. And that's a great question, too, Jeff. Uh, there was yeah. a lot of travel there. Yeah, and, 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 and truthfully, it's just good uh, business practice to, to not let yourself get lazy, as you said. And uh, unfortunately, I think there were some promoters that in a future year, shall we say, uh, started getting a little lazy with their finishes. Okay, so Ron, tell us about your trip to St. Louis. 
on uh, Friday, February 6th, 1976. Well, I'd been there two weeks earlier. We talked about that a couple of stud casts ago. And uh, on that Friday, I was in a handicap match with a partner, and uh, I think it was Jerry Oates against Harley Ray. And I was insulted that I had to have a partner to have a chance to beat Harley. And Harley didn't like it either, you know. And, he, and Harley and I were becoming pretty close friends. And he kind of apologized to me for the booking when they had that match that night. You know, he goes, Ron, I, I would have never booked you in here with us, with another partner and beat you and somebody else. He, he, was, he was a little upset by the fact that, that I wasn't taken care of better. And Harley and I, we're going to set records in, in Knoxville in 1977 and 78. We're going to set the all-time records for Southeastern attendance, at least in the Northern Division. And we're going to set all-time records for that building that uh, still are records today. Uh, on this Friday trip in February of 1976, I was booked against the old hard punch man, Oxbaker. And, uh, and he's not an easy guy to have a great match with, I can tell you that. And anybody that's ever worked with Ox will probably uh, tell you the same thing. Uh, they wanted me, obviously, to put him over. Uh, I had no problem with that. But it didn't make sense for me to miss my own shows like I was doing on this Friday night to come to St. Louis and do jobs for guys. You know, it's like so I talked to Sam about it and and he understood. He agreed, you know, uh, since he was an owner himself, although he never wrestled, he really got the idea and he, he saw the deal. He apologized for his booker not using me properly. And uh, Sam never booked his own town. So, you know, he always had a booker. In 73 and 74, when I was having that big run in St. Louis, Pat O'Connor was the booker. Pat really liked me, and, uh, and but I don't remember who was booking on this trip. But I do know that I only worked St. Louis one more time in the rest of my career, and that's going to be in January a year later, in 1977. All right, Ron, if we could take a little break here. Now we're going to go to David Summers, and he is going to talk about Super Studcast number 26 with Ricky and Robert, the Rock and Roll Express with a special guest appearance by the great Brian Last. The Tennessee Stud has gone big this time. 90 Minute Super Studcast number 26, part one, features one of the greatest, if not the greatest, tag teams of all time. The Rock and Roll Express. Ricky Morton and Robert Gibson paid their dues long before becoming one of the most popular tag teams in the sport. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast. Hear the fascinating story of how this legendary team was formed. The astronomical number of tag titles held. The wrestling background of both. How they managed to bridge from the old school style into modern day wrestling and are still viable in today's sport. This one is for you, old school fans to today's fans. This team had something for everybody. At tnstud.com or patreon.com slash studcast, only $2.99. Saddle up with what may be the best ever. Okay, where to now, Ron? Well, we're going to go to Guapala, Tennessee. And it's going to be a very chilling night for Homer Odell there. It's the second time, like I said, that we've ever been to this town. And uh, he's got his Tennessee tag champions, Norvell Austin and Butch Malone, with him. He doesn't have Tanaka. Tanaka has disappeared. So uh, Homer and his team, they're getting a lot of heat in the territory by this point, uh, especially in these small cities that had not had much wrestling. He didn't have to do much in these uh, small towns that, we're just going to for the first or second time because those fans have, have never seen anything. So the police that worked the matches weren't accustomed to working wrestling matches. Uh, and that was the case in every place you went in every territory. You had to get them acclimated to what they needed to do. But especially in these towns that we're going to in Kentucky and Tennessee, where the policemen come in there. Uh, they want to attack the wrestler as bad as the fans sometimes, you know, and uh, and we had a couple of instances of that happening. So, uh, you know, it was very difficult to protect our boys, especially the heels in these new towns. And uh, so the police, they had they had no idea of, of how to protect the fans and they had no idea how dangerous the fans could be. So I couldn't talk to them. I'm the owner of the company, but I can't go out there and talk to him. I didn't want anybody to know I, I had anything to do with the company other than being a wrestler. So I had my referee, Mac, who handled so many things for me. 
was just tremendous at taking care of business. And he, he and I talked a lot, and he had the discussions with the police in all these towns. And that was the first thing he'd do. He took the ring. They would set the ring up, and then when the police arrived, he'd take them off to the side, and he'd tell them exactly what they needed to do. Uh, sometimes you got what they needed to do. Sometimes you didn't. And uh, he, he really grasped what we needed to do, and he did a great job over the years of talking to these policemen in, in all these towns. And when he started really getting over, the local police would be uh, critical to having a safe event. I mean, you know, if, if they weren't Johnny on the spot, once the ride gets started, you don't just stop it. You know, so you've got to be on it from the very beginning to keep something bad from happening. And riots were the last thing I wanted. There, there was one guy in particular who didn't believe that was true. You know, uh, <laughs> he believed, he certainly believed that riots were bad for business, and that was Homer Odell. He was as scared of a crowd as any hill I was ever around. I never saw a guy so fearful of the crowd. I think he'd probably been in a bunch of riots. I never had the chance to spend a lot of time with Homer because he's a heel and I'm a baby face and we're strictly kayfabe. I just see him in the dressing room. I never had the time to ask him about why he had such a fear of the crowd, but uh, he'd probably been in a lot of riots and he might've even been cut before, you know? So these small cities, uh, they're now, we're going to four of them a week each week and uh, they're full of these enthusiastic fans that are prone to ride. If the heat's too much, they, they're going to they're gonna do something. So uh, the booker is responsible for managing that part of the business. Finishes and spot shows, like these small cities, they had to be a, with a little bit of heat, a little heat as possible. Now, baby faces needed to go over 95% of the time. And even when the baby faces went over, the heat would be so strong, you'd still have the riot. So uh, it was a, it was really ridiculous that when you walked a fine line with all these cities in Kentucky and Tennessee and into Virginia and going to be into West Virginia that haven't had rusting very much. So here's what happens uh, on Thursday, February 5th, 1976 in La Fala, Tennessee. The high school gym, first of all, is full. I mean, it's the second time we've been there. First time was almost full. This time it's full. And they've got bleachers down both sides of the basketball court, like most gymnasiums do. And it just happened to be that both dressing rooms are located on the same side of the building, and the dressing rooms are underneath the bleachers, obviously. Uh, so uh, they're connected to each other, the dressing rooms. And that's that's a pretty good benefit. You know, you can you actually talk to each other some, and you can you don't have to have a referee carrying the information back and forth. Uh, you usually have a better match and you, that night if you can do it that way. The problem with this gym was that the Hills dressing room was located, the door in and out of that dressing room was located between two sets of bleachers. So this particular night, Homer and his boys are wrestling against Ron and Don Wright. And Homer being the old pro and then being scared anyway, he saw the problem. Uh, he got antsy about getting back through that narrow entranceway into the dressing room, and he was worried, obviously, about his safety after the match was over. Uh, and he actually came and talked to me about it early in the evening. He says, Ron, here's the deal. Have you looked out there? I said, well, no, I haven't. You know, Omar, I, I can't go down to your dressing room and, and take a look, you know. So he was telling me the situation, and uh, – you know, and I explained to him, well, Homer, I can't change change the configuration of this building, you know, and he understood that. So he finally said, okay, he was all right with it. Told him just be careful, right? So the three of them went to the ring. And the, uh, with the other heels being aware of Homer's anxiety, someone in the dress room locked the door behind them when they left the dressing room. You know, that's one of the ribs, man. The old guys in the old days, man, they were all ribbers. It's probably Carson. It could have been Dick Dunn. You know, those all guys were all there that night, and they knew Homer was scared to death, and he's in the last match, and when he went out that dressing room door, they locked the door so he couldn't get back in. So, <laughs> it was meant to be funny, but it didn't turn out to be funny. You know, fans were getting into the match at the end of it, and a couple of people, came close to the ring. We didn't have any barriers back in that time frame. You had nothing, no rope even around the ring. 
uh, fans could come right to the apron if they wanted to. But the local police did a pretty decent job. They grabbed these two people and they backed them away. But uh, Homer had seen enough. He, he was he was already concerned about the dressing room situation. And, you know, and now there's a look, there's a couple of guys that are trying to get in the ring. And, oh, so he buzzes Austin and Malone. He says, let's go home, man. We go, we, I'm leaving. I'm going to the dressing room. So they finish up and they get at the, hit the floor behind him. And, uh, and the crowd cuts them off uh, where they're entering the dressing room area, where that split between the bleachers is. And, uh, I heard the sounds of it. Uh, you know, uh, Homer gets to the door first. He goes uh, straight to the door, and he and he starts trying to turn the knob, and he's locked out. And all oh, the crowd's on top of him, and Austin and Malone are pushing and shoving people, and Homer's back there screaming like a banshee devil. I could hear him inside the dressing room, in away from the building, the exterior part where he was. I could hear him screaming, he'd go, oh, get the door, get the door. So uh, I sent Rob and them. Uh, once I heard the sounds, it was like about a riot was about to get started. I sent Rob and Jimmy around there to try to get, to push the people back and, uh, you know, try to beat the heck out of the heels or whatever they had to keep the fans off of them. And uh, so when they got around there, then I ran through the end of the dressing room, Homer's dressing room, and I unlocked the door and just ran straight out. I didn't want anybody to see me back in there. So I ran straight back into my dressing room. So once he got in, you know, he, he was he was still screaming. He came in the dressing room door and he was just, oh, God, he was raving mad because somebody risked our lives out there. They wanted to kill me. You know, he was giving them, he was doing an interview for me. You know, nothing I could do for him at that point. Uh, so all the baby faces in my dressing room, they heard him going off over there and they started laughing like hell, man. <laughs> it is panic over there. And uh, I had to stop them, you know, because it was business. I, I stopped the whole crew of baby faces and I said, I gave them a little lecture about how dangerous things were going to get when we had these heels like this to start getting red hot. Uh, Carson was already having problems and, uh, and after this last TV show, the superstars are going to start having problems. And I told him, you know, he, he's an important part of drawing money, but but had to be controlled. And every wrestler in the building had to be ready to help if anything got out of hand. The best protection you have in a riot is the boys from the dressing room, not the police, because uh, they know kind of what to do. So uh, we're going to have more problems. In the next couple of years, as the popularity of Southeastern grew, and all the buildings are going to become a lot more dangerous. I took Homer aside after it was over, and I calmed him down. And, uh, you know, he, he was he was upset, but, uh, you know, I apologized, and I said, we'll do it the best we can, Homer, but it, it is what it is, and you've got to expect that, that uh, your body and, uh, and your, your livelihood is in danger all the time. Uh, you get more heat, but you're going to get more money, too. You know, I kind of gave him a little lecture, too. And uh, I'm going to experience what a knife felt like uh, three years later in Panama City, Florida. And uh, that's when I really knew what Homer was going through. You know, once I had experienced this in 1978, I really had a lot more uh, empathy and sympathy for poor Homer. Okay, Ron, so one of the segments that we've just started doing recently is the Studs Learning Tree, one of the most popular segments on uh, this stud cast. So where are we going this week, and who sent in the question? Well, our Learning Tree question today comes from uh, Benji Fido, and uh, he asked, can you describe what National Wrestling Alliance meetings were like, how champions were decided upon, who I thought might have made a good champion, how disputes were handled, and what it was like to be in that atmosphere. I like this one. It's a good question, and it, and it covers a lot of ground. Uh, and people know so little about these National Wrestling Alliance meetings and what it was like to own a wrestling company and to be associated with these guys. So uh, my first meeting I went to, I'm just going to start back at my first meeting, it was in 1966. I was 18 years old, just graduated from high school. 
My father was a member of the National Wrestling Alliance. He was associated with the Georgia Championship Wrestling. He was partners with Ray Guckle and Paul Jones. That's not the Paul Jones that a lot of people are going to think of automatically. That spent a lot of time in mid-Atlantic and down in Florida. This Paul Jones was a tremendous old-timer that worked back in my grandfather Roy Welch's day. He and Roy, in fact, had been friends for many years. And both of them were founding members of the National Wrestling Alliance in 1948. I really liked and respected Paul Jones. He was a huge guy for his time. He was about 6'4 and weighed over 250 pounds. He was the hook scissor king. I don't know if fans know much about the hook scissor. It's a tremendous shooting move. And uh, because Paul Jones was tall, about 6'4, hook scissor was a great move for him. It was a very painful shooting move if you got put in it. Uh, you didn't, you tapped out pretty quick because it, you could break your ribs. You could do what, sometimes break your arm. It depends on where the hook scissor was applied. Uh, so it was used a lot back in the early 1900s in, in Roy's day and in uh, this particular Paul Jones day. Uh, Paul taught it to me himself, you know, when I was 18 years old, about the same time frame. And he, we went to the mat uh, in a ring in the, the building there where the office was located in Atlanta. And he showed me the hook scissor. And he told me, you know, uh, you know, he insisted, in fact, that uh, that I had really long legs, he says, and you could apply more pressure and leverage than most wrestlers can because of the length of your legs. It was a devastating move. And I never had anyone fail to tap out when I applied that hook scissor to him. So I, I owe a lot of that to a gentleman named Paul Jones, the old timer. Uh, he was not at this meeting, but Ray Gunkel was there in Las Vegas. And it was during this time period when my dad and, and Ray were still friends and getting along. It was basically six years before the Atlanta War in 1972. Uh, I had great respect for Ray. He was extremely nice to both Rob and I. In fact, he taught us to water ski on Lake Lanier, which is a big lake just outside Atlanta in the summer of 1966. Both Rob and I, we were blown away by the opportunity to see all these stars that we were so familiar with and to be able to meet him. And dad made a point of introducing us whenever we ran into uh, anybody uh, in, a in the casinos or in the restaurants, he made sure that he introduced us. And uh, I really appreciated that. Uh, he knew long before we did that we were going to be a part of this business soon. You know, I didn't even think about it at this point. I'm 18 years old thinking that someday I'm going to be a part of this, but uh, you know, dad knew it. Uh, we obviously were not a part of the actual NWA meetings, of course, but I was in 1975 because by then I had uh, made application to put Southeastern Wrestling into the National Wrestling Alliance. I was accepted right away. So now I'm going to start answering some of the questions that he asked, this gentleman asked in this learning tree. Uh, once inside the meetings in the summer of 1975, I was amazed at the cordiality of the room, how everybody seemed to get along. It was a great rapport between all these different promoters from all over the country and all over the world. It was a fairly large room, held about at least 100 people. That was the way it was just about every year. It was usually a room that would hold about 100 people. And when I, I'm going to get in the ADT security business in 2002, and uh, the meetings there are going to be huge. You know, you're going to be in a room with 2,000 people. Uh, it wasn't a cordial setting, but a huge corporate setting, you know. Uh, and there were more than 1,000 dealers in North America. I didn't know anything about that business when I got into it in 2002, but I'm going to end up the 12th largest dealer in North America before I finish with ADT. There was no comparison between the security business and the wrestling business, though, especially among the characters in each. I mean, there's no business like wrestling when you talk about characters. It's just amazing what, what you get, and you see everything in wrestling. Uh, my first meeting at, with the NWA it was a unique experience. I'll never forget it. Most territories were owned and run by older guys. Uh, some of them were tired, and some of them were still active wrestlers. Uh, they were from all over the world. But as the years went on, many more members started to come from places other than America. As you would imagine, no two NWA members were alike. Boy, that's for sure. You, 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 you saw everything there. My first year, I was a little taken back 
by the language of some members. The Roy Shires out of San Francisco in particular. <laughs> and uh, Sam Mutchick was the president, and he was in charge of meetings, which lasted three days. And my first day in a meeting, Roy Shires, for no particular reason, got up in the middle of a meeting, and, and he just made a big, vulgar scream and <laughs> rant for about two minutes that just it went on and on. I mean, I heard curse words that I'd never heard in my life before. I didn't even, I, I didn't know they existed. And uh, members were used to that from Shires. But this rant was so bad that Sam had to stop him in mid-sentence. And he had a hard time stopping him. Shires was just going crazy about something. And I couldn't figure out what it was because he didn't throw any content in other than the dirty words. So there wasn't much being actually said other than dirty words. So, uh. You know, the, after he, 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 Sam stopped him in mid-sentence and he lectured Shires about his mouth. He said, I'm instituting a new rule right now, Roy. I'm going to call it the Roy Shires rule. And uh, everybody laughed. You know, it was like, so Sam just continued on. He said, every time a member says a curse word, I'm going to fine him $10 for every word. So, so Shires is sitting down. Shires raised his hand. So Sam recognized him to speak. So Shires gets up and he's very polite, you know, and he calms down and his voice is very polite. And he says, uh, and he asks Sam, uh, well, do you mind, Sam, if I say a few words to explain how I feel? And Sam said, okay, go ahead. And oh my God, then he really took off on a curse word ramp. I mean, this time it probably went for three minutes. And he there's just he he would have made a drunk sailor embarrassed, man. <laughs> so I watched Sam as soon as he started with the curse word. Sam grabbed the pen and he was he looked like he was trying to count the words as they came out. And uh, after at least two minutes of practically all curse words, Shire stopped and he sat back down. Everybody applauded again. I don't know whether they were applauding because they liked his rant or whether they were going to applaud to see what Sam's going to do. So Sam was busy counting while all the applause was going on. He's counting in more than he's having to do the figures. And so finally the applause all stopped and Sam asked Shires to stand up again. Roy had stood up and had his rant. He sat back down. He said, uh, Roy, please stand up. So Roy did, you know, so. Sam says, uh, I hope you're happy, Roy, <laughs> because now you can come up here and you can give me $2,200 for 220 curse words. <laughs> everybody in the meeting cracked up again, man. <laughs> so everybody's getting a big laugh at Roy Shire's expense. But uh, then the real kicker for me happened. Shire's went up to Sam. Sam said, you know, you can come up here and pay me. And he pulled out $2,200 in cash. And uh, gave it to Sam and went silently back to his seat and sat down. He never paid a cent for the next two days. <laughs> I guess that was his limit. He was only going to go 2200 I was amazed that anybody had $2,000 cash in their pocket that they carried around with them at all times. And But obviously, Shires had it. And, uh, you know, I, I saw that little display of money, and I soon began to see where most of the money in wrestling was going. It was new to the business. I was new to it. Uh, and I was starving my first year in business, but I was going to realize in the next couple of years that my giving up my opportunity to possibly be in world heavyweight champion to own a company was probably not a bad idea. <laughs> so I asked Sam to come up front on my first meeting ever. And, you know, Sam asked me, you know, he, he invited me up. He says, uh, you know, they, Ron Fuller uh, with Southeastern Wrestling is a brand new member and he's got a great wrestling program. and Ron, would you come up and tell our members what you're doing with your wrestling show? I, now, I didn't expect it. I was kind of blown away, obviously. And and when I stood up in front of that room, it was looking. I was like looking at the who's who of professional wrestling in 1975. It was like, wow, man, they're all here. I explained to them how to do instant replay, how to do split screen, how to do personality profile, how to add bumpers and, and music. Uh, I had a bit of font cards on the screens uh, as your announcers reading them off. I just went through a litany of things that we were doing that nobody else was doing. And I was a big hit because of it, because a lot of these older members, they needed to do those types of things to improve their TV product. 
And uh, many of them came looked me up after the meeting. They wanted to get more details. How how many tape machines do you have to have to do instant replay? All these questions. So you know, I felt like well, you know, I made a pretty good impression. They they obviously uh, want to hear more. So Sam had me start to do these meetings every year for probably four or five years. He brought me up up front every year, and uh, he called it the TV meetings. <laughs> you know. He said, Ron, it's time for the TV meeting. What do you got? So uh, it was nice to be able to get that notice uh, from everybody. Now, I've described what the NWA meetings were like and the atmosphere. So let's get to Mr. Uh, Fido's uh, next question, picking the NWA world champions. Now, this process was not a part of the annual Las Vegas meetings. And I, I have a feeling most fans think that it all took place in Vegas. But this was done behind closed doors. This picking of world champions was done behind closed doors with just a few powerful members that happened to have the most influence at that time frame. Let's just go back to Dory Funk Jr.'s run as an example so I can kind of explain how Jr. and the next three champions after him evolved. Obviously, Dory Funk Sr. was very powerful at the time. Eddie Graham and my father. Uh, were very close to Dory Sr., and they backed him up in support of Dory Jr., who is Sr. was pushing for world champion, obviously. I think that backing came came in a deal, <laughs> at a deal and behind it or underneath it, that once Jr. was out, Jack Briscoe was going to take over the belt. And I don't know who the actual small group was involved in the Dory Jr. switch from Gene Koninsky. I don't know who that was, but uh, I do know that... Uh, there was a problem when Dory Jr. was set to lose the championship to Jack Briscoe, and Jr. suddenly has this, which uh, a lot of people say, uh, a fake injury working on his dad's ranch, and uh, and he can't wrestle, and he can't drop the title to Briscoe. Now, word was Dory Sr. didn't want Jr. to get beat by a babyface, and uh, Jack Briscoe's a babyface, right? So, uh there must have been another meeting around that same event that got Harley involved. And that probably started from Bob Geigel and Sam Mutchie. They operated territories next to each other. Geigel operated out of Kansas City, Muchnick in St. Louis. Geigel was providing Muchnick with some talent for his St. Louis shows. Harley was a star in Kansas City, and he was also over in St. Louis. Uh, Junior dropped the title to Harley. Instead of Briscoe, and Harley eventually put it on Briscoe. And for a few years, that belt stayed primarily between the Amarillo, Florida, Kansas City, and St. Louis territories. If you look back at those champions, Dory Jr. and Terry and Jack Briscoe and Harley, that's the three territories that those four guys were coming out of. Uh, Jack dropped it to Terry Funk, making it four champions in a row from those four territories. Crazy. Obviously, Crockett, Mid-Atlantic, they're going to break that up pretty quickly, and Flair is going to be in as champion uh, following this run here that is pretty much controlled basically by Florida, by uh, Dory Funk Sr., and, uh, you know, and obviously there was a lot of other people that appreciated Jack Briscoe's work. As far as uh, who I would have considered to make an NWA champion out of, that, I'll answer that question now. Uh, for me. There's only one guy, period, you know, and, and he was a veteran when I wrestled him. He had held belts all over the world. He was big, about 6'4", 250 or more. He had that look and charisma that every NWA champion ought to have. He was solid in the ring, and everything he did looked good. Uh, he pulverized people. He was demonic looking. He, he just really had, had something spectacular. He worked a unique style uh, with mostly only wrestling in his matches, which was really unusual for a heel. But I never failed to work with him when we didn't have the crowd on their feet by the time we got to the end of the match. Uh, you'd work these long matches. He loved those long matches. He, and he built this heat slowly over the process. And when he got ready to go, uh, he exploded the crowd on the end. Uh, he was perfect for the world champion, I thought. He was great on the mic, and most of all, he was totally believable. Not just the fans, but to, even to the guys who worked with him. I mean, uh, that wrestler that I would have chosen 
is Johnny Valentine. And then he, he suffers that horrible injury in the plane wreck with flair and, and, uh, and, and well, he's lost to the wrestling business. Uh, he was a mar- marvelous talent and I thought would have made a tremendous world champion. Uh, I want to back up for just a second. Uh, there's another obvious question here regarding who picks the new champion, uh, that wasn't asked. And, uh, you know, I think I want to go ahead and cover that now. Uh, that question would be why didn't all the territories get a vote and who would be the next champion? That would be the reasonable thing you would expect to happen. And I don't think it happened that way for two reasons. The first is the problem of kayfabe. How do you keep all the members' mouths shut about who is coming next as champion if they all know who it's going to be? You know, imagine what it would, would have happened if the word had got out who was going to be the next world champion. Just the word alone of who it's going to be, or worse still, the when, the date, and the, and the place, you know, where it's going to happen. I mean, so obviously, to me, the fewer members that knew the answer to those questions, the better off it was. So I think that's why they had this little system in which they got those little backroom thing going with four or five people only, and uh, they made those decisions uh, away from the entire membership. The second would have been the difficulty of dealing with the entire membership and all the different directions each member might recommend if you came to the new champion. If you sat down in one of these meetings and you got 50 different promoters and you go, who would, who would you like to have as world champion? Oh, my gosh. Well, you'd have you'd have 50 different guys probably. And uh, and it would just uh, it would really, really make it difficult to uh, to pick uh, and um there was a lot of fantastic talent in the NWA. I mean, uh, you know, God, the best talent in the world. And discussing who was next between the entire membership, it had probably created a lot of animosity between the members and, uh, and fractions within the entire membership. It, it was difficult enough for Sam to handle a big room full of egos alone, much less having them argue against each other. You know, I can only imagine if it went just beyond arguing which I saw it on a couple of occasions I thought was going to happen uh, and went on to a physical altercations. Hey, there was a lot of very tough and potentially dangerous men in those meetings. You didn't want to get a big fight started with that group of guys. Uh, it, it would have just been, I can't imagine what it would have been. So uh, let's wrestle with the last question. How did the NWA settle disputes? I only remember one year in which tensions ran real high for the entire three days. And that issue was about which, if not both, Japanese companies would be members of the NWA. There were only two major wrestling companies in Japan, Giant Baba with All Japan and uh, Antonio Inoki's New Japan. Baba is a member of the NWA. Inoki's trying to become a member. Baba and All Japan was uh, supported by Funk Sr. and both Dory and Terry who worked in Japan regularly. And obviously, NWA membership was very important. I mean, it wouldn't have been a big battle for three days. Anoki wouldn't have spent all the time and effort to try to get to that membership. Uh, It was extremely important if you were in the wrestling business to be a part of the National Wrestling Alliance. And uh, this meeting, this particular meeting, was just embroiled with it. And... uh, this occurred during the time frame that Dory Sr. and Eddie and other members, including me, supported, supported Baba. I voted for Baba. So did my dad and Eddie out of uh, Florida. And there was a lot of tension during this particular convention. The vote on the last day was the first vote I'd ever seen at a convention that was not out loud, but was by done by roll call. Uh, the vote was very close and uh, denied New Japan and Inoki their membership. I was grateful that we didn't have more conventions with that kind of tension. So I want to thank Mr. Benji Fido for your great questions here today, Benji. And uh, I want to add that I was honored to be elected as vice president of the National Wrestling Alliance under President Sam Muchnick in 1985, shortly after I switched Southeastern to Continental Championship Wrestling. And it was quite an honor to have gotten that high in that organization. Uh, So I'm really looking forward to the next week's learning tree. Okay. As we begin to wrap up the show, I would encourage you to uh, like Ron Fuller, the Tennessee stud on Facebook, and you automatically become friends with the legend on Twitter at Ron Fuller Welch, super stud cast number 26. 
Part one with Ricky and Robert, the world-famous Rock and Roll Express, will be released Tuesday, February 12th, with the great Brian Last uh, joining the crew. Ron, where are we going next week? Well, we're going to continue discovering the car and the angles of February 1976. We're going to check out some ads that Don Carson ran, offering people $500 to black Ron Wright's other eye. <laughs> he had one black one, and he's going to give more money out to somebody to black his other ones. The next learning tree is going to touch on something mentioned in today's studcast, oddly enough. And I'm going to answer the question, what was the worst riot you were ever in? And uh, I just want to, before we close out here, Jeff, I want to thank everyone who listened to this studcast today. And um, may God bless all of us. Okay. For the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. And for our producer, the great sweet man himself, Lou Kippelman, I am Jeff Bowder. And I would encourage you on the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network to check out my podcast with Barry Rose. It's called Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry. And until next week for the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller, when the ride continues. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. One, two, three. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.